You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. Well, if it's okay, I'm going to share a story with you that I've already shared before. Some of you will hear this for the second time. Others of you won't. But I do, every time I hear the phrase, ladies' night, it, uh, it rings something, a, a sad memory. When I was in seventh grade, I was sitting in a church service, and I heard that there was a ladies' night at our church. Well, when you were in seventh grade, it was in the youth group, there was a ladies' night going on. I turned to my best friends at that time and said, we're going. It's, we're showing up. So we did. And the process that it took us to get there, um, I figured, well, what can you do? How can you get to the ladies' night? You know, seventh grade boy, a bunch of teenage girls, that's just perfect. So... That night comes around, I'm at my friend's house, and his dad comes in, and he's like, what are you guys talking about? I was like, well, it's the girls' night at the church tonight. So he's like, well, are you going to go? I was like, absolutely. And uh, he said, well, here's some money for some masks. So he gave us some money, and we stopped by the convenience store and got a Darth Vader mask and the scariest clown mask you could ever find. And we went to the church, and I thought, this is perfect. Uh, you know, we're going to show up and... We're just going to, I don't know, just hang out for a little bit with these masks on. And we went down to each and every single door. Every door was locked. Really, really big church. So there's, I don't know, there's probably 10, 15 different types of entrances. And we couldn't get in. And then finally, um, as if God himself unlocked the door for us, there was an entrance available. And I opened the door. And it was just now our group of about five of us whittled down to two. And my, myself and my friend there are staring in through a window, seeing all of the girls staring up at a screen. I turned to Doug and I said, this is perfect. They're watching a movie. So I turned to him, put on my Darth Vader mask. I am your father. He turns, puts on his clown mask. I turned to him and I said, are you ready? He's like, yeah. Open up the door and I run as fast as possible through the gymnasium there, screaming at the top of my lungs, run around the corner, hide behind the corner, and I go, where's Doug? (laughs) And I realize I'm the only one. (laughs) Then I realize that there's no other voices laughing, which typically you would think that that would inspire a little bit of laughter, maybe a chuckle here or there. Nothing. No laughter, nothing, no response. So I start, I will never forget, I'm, I'm bouncing my adrenaline, I'm shaking, I'm like, what do I do? He's my ride. I didn't drive at that time. So I'm like, this is not good. So I run around the corner, and my dad is a pastor. And as I run around the corner, there is my dad's church secretary standing there, red in the face, cherry red in the face. And she says, Jared, that wasn't a good idea. And of course. And she said, they were having an altar call. Boom, that was a bad day. (laughs) Needless to say, they had a little message before they had a movie. So before you run through a church with a mask on, make sure they're watching a movie. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to the book of Mark chapter 5. If you have it, say amen. If you don't, say oh me. Mark chapter 5. Actually, chapter 6 is where we're going to be. Mark 5 is on my notes. Uh, we've been preaching through the gospel of Mark, what we understand to be the first um, Christian letter that's written. It's the first of the four Gospels that's written. And what we want to do here, really, and we have been, is taking verse by verse just a section of Scripture and asking God to speak to us through it. Uh, We have to be careful when we approach the Bible that we don't view this thing as an encyclopedia. Let me explain. This is a story of God's redemptive history 
in our lives and in humanity's life. This isn't just something that we go to the back of the table of uh, contents and we say, I'm struggling with fear. Let me pull together ten scriptures on why not to fear, and if I do that, then I'm good. Now, if you reduce the Bible to an encyclopedia, watch this, you'll get frustrated that the Bible doesn't talk about everything, right? So maybe you've been in a discussion with somebody and they go, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about this. And my response is simply, that's not the point of the Bible. There's a whole lot of things that the Bible doesn't talk about because that's not what it is about. The Bible's not an encyclopedia for life. The Bible is to reveal who God is, his character, the triune God, and our response to him. So every other way that we want to systematize it is fine if it glorifies God and rightly displays his character. Not if we try to figure out God by putting in this little system of, if I struggle with this, I do this. If I do that, if I do this. What you find is that it actually becomes more about you than about him. So Mark chapter 5 into chapter 6, where we'll be today, is this interesting contrast that we'll see here in a moment between God being healer and then God being rejected, namely Christ. Let's read together Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And now on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did these men get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brothers of James, Hoses, Judah, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could not do any mighty work there, except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. I want to talk to you today just for a few moments about living in two worlds. Every single person in this room is simultaneously living in two types of worlds. And in this scripture today, I want to show you how our offense at one will limit us in the other. Right now, we are living in two worlds. I find it interesting, the contrast, where the scripture says, and where he came from. He went away from there and came to his hometown. Last week, Jesse preached on Mark chapter 5, the past two weeks actually, speaking to us about Jairus' daughter who was healed, and also with the woman of the issue of blood. What I find fascinating about this is that Jesus in one moment can be accepted and celebrated and healed. And immediately after, what do we see in Mark chapter 6? He goes to his hometown and people say, no thanks. What's frightening and what's revealing about this is that our response to God, God responds to. God responds to our response. I meet a whole lot of people that have an attitude towards God that looks something like this. He knows where I live. He knows my name. He knows my address. If he wants me, he can come and get me. All right? Now, does God know where you're at? Is that theologically correct? Yes. Uh, Can God come and get you if he wants? Yes. However, Hebrews tells us this. That without faith, it's impossible to please him for whoever draws near as much, draws near, wow, I'm struggling, draws near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who diligently seek him. It's interesting. 
We can kind of take this apathetic approach to God that says, yeah, if he wants me, he can come and get me. If he wants to use my life, he can use me. But yet what we see is that God responds to our response. What's fascinating about this is he says, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Verse 3 says this, is not this the carpenter? What they see here is that they grew up with Jesus. We know, at least from history, that Jesus starts his ministry around age 30. So for the first 30 years of his life, he is surrounded by people that whether you understand this, believe this or not, Jesus uh, was not walking on water, walking through walls for the first 30 years of his life. Jesus wasn't displaying any signs of being the Messiah other than what we see at the age of 12 going to the temple and displaying an abnormal hunger and wisdom at that age. There's nothing about Jesus at that time, although he's fully God and fully man, there's nothing about him that somebody goes, hey, you're the Messiah. At birth there is, and then there is 30 years of silence that we know almost nothing about other than the fact that Jesus is a carpenter. So then Jesus comes after 30 years. Talk about a surprise, right? You're friends with Jesus growing up. Come on. You're best friends with Jesus. You're just kind of hanging out, playing ball. Next thing you know, he's growing some guy's eye back. Yeah, what? What? Like, come on. Like, imagine if your friend had like a secret like that, which you can't, all right? There's only one Messiah. But just imagine that. You grow up your whole life, and then your friend goes, yeah, I'm a multimillionaire. Be like, come on, what? Like, bro, you wouldn't spot me on the baseball game. So Jesus, for 30 years, there's really no hint. And I'll tell you, and if, and if you're kind of pushing back, well, I don't know if I believe that. Later on, we actually see that Jesus' family, he has to turn them down because Mary, his own mother and brothers say, you're out of your mind. And Jesus says, what? These aren't my brothers. This isn't my mother. Those who hear and obey the word of God, those are my brothers and my mother. For 30 years, Jesus is under cover. He comes out and begins this healing ministry that we've traced for the first five chapters. And then Mark 6, he makes a stop back in his hometown. And the first thing they see is Jesus tries to hear all about him. And they go, is this not the carpenter? Isn't the same hands? Isn't that interesting? How are such mighty works done by his hands? You know, when you're a carpenter, it's all you use. In essence, they look at Jesus and say, Jesus, we figured you out. We know who you are. We understand who you are. You're not able to move in my life like this because I understand who you are. In opposition to this, Mark chapter 5, right before the story says this, if you would come lay your hands on my daughter, she would be healed. Last week, the message that Jesse preached from, the woman with the issue of blood says this in Mark five twenty-eight: if I could just touch his garments. What strikingly different contrast. If I could touch him, or if he could touch me too, I don't want you to touch me. I know who you are. I find it fascinating that we can somehow rationalize in our mind that we're exactly where God wants us to be, regardless of if we desire him. Regardless of if there's any desire to be known by him, somehow we can just kind of put ourselves to sleep by being able to say, you know what, I know him. Everything he's always done in my life is this way. I want to say this to you today. God has more for you than you've already experienced. God has more for your life than you've already experienced. 
Book of Proverbs 25, verse 2 says, It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings to search things out. It doesn't mean God's hiding from you. That's not hiding under a bush that's not trying to be revealed. He's simply, it's, it's, we've, we'll see it in the parables, that God doesn't cast his pearls among swine, pigs. God wants to reveal who he is, but not recklessly. He looks for people that desire him. Why? Not because he's egotistical, not because he's narcissistic or needs our attention. But the scary part is that when we make a statement that says this, God knows where I'm at. If he wants me, he can come and get me. What we say is this, that God is fundamentally about us. That's what that statement, that's what that philosophy says, that if God wants my life, he can come and get it. What we're saying is that I am what matters to God to the point that if he wants something, he comes and get it. What I want to suggest to you is this. You can live your whole life like that and miss God's purpose for your life. We just sit back and say, if he wants me, come and get me. The reality of the scripture is this, that God wasn't created for us. God is creator. We were created for him. For us to sit back and say, eh, I'm not really sure. Isn't this the way God works? And kind of ostracize him, become offended, push him back, or say that if he wants me, come and get me. I have sorry news for you this morning. You can live your whole life in that way. Scripture says this, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Let me clarify verse 5. Verse 5 is not saying to us that Jesus tried to do something and it didn't work. Or Jesus didn't try to heal somebody and he's like, ah, don't got, where's it at today? That's not what's happening here. All right? He didn't run out of the power for that few moments. Why could he not do anything but just a few miracles? Because nobody would allow him to. Nobody would come to him because they were offended, it says. It's only those that came to him were healed. The scripture shows us that God responds to our response. You can argue on both sides of that. Well, how much of it's God? How much of it's me? How much of it's God? You know what? God is the same God of Acts and Proverbs. God is the God of the miraculous and God is the God of the day in and day out. You are exactly where you are right now due to your response of God. Now, I'm not saying this in a legalistic, get passionate, do something else. What I'm simply saying is that it's our responsibility to respond to God's word and revealed character. If we look at the, if we look at the scripture, I say, man, I'm not really sure about that. I've tried that. You know, it doesn't really work. I remember a few years ago, I was in Gettysburg and we were, that's where I grew up, and I was witnessing, just sharing the gospel. And it was just kind of a natural thing. I was talking with this guy. He looks at me. He says, uh, yeah, yeah, I was like you one day. I was, I was real passionate. Someday you're going to burn out, though. You'll be like me. So that's encouraging. Thanks for, thanks for, thanks for the, uh, the heads up. Well, at this point, uh, that hasn't happened. I'm not sure if the man's a prophet. We'll see in a few years, all right? But simply saying this. If we look at the scripture and go, yeah, I, I figured this thing out. I don't need it. Why do people get offended? Why do we not seek God? Why do we become uh, frustrated with who he is? I want to suggest what I started with because we live in two worlds. Scripture says, how are such mighty things done by his hands? Is this not a carpenter? We live in a world of carpentry. 
Everything we do, we live in a world of materialism. We live in a world where we build things and we've got to tear them down. We live in a world that's physical realities. Everything we see, we traffic in those worlds. But yet we also understand if we are Christians, we believe that this natural world didn't just arrive from outer space from nothing, but came from something. Hebrews chapter 3 says that every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So everything we see here came from something we didn't see. It would be illogical to just say something came from nothing. All right. Now, I'm not great at math, but the one thing that I can really lock down is zero plus zero equals what? Zero. Now, that if you can't get that one figured out, it's really hard to graduate onto the zero plus one thing. Something has to come from something. But the danger in our world, particularly, I believe, Western society, is that we are surrounded by carpentry, but we also idolize it. To the point where we can't see through anything beyond this world. That this becomes everything. That we recognize, well, don't you understand? Jesus, this is a world of carpentry. And you are the one who did this. You're the one who built this, this materialistic thing. I want to suggest to you, though, that this is, this is important. God's not against carpentry. Jesus was a carpenter. God's not against the created things. He's not against those things. But there's more than that. You know, it's funny, when we start talking about living in two worlds, the world of the natural and the world of the supernatural, it's instantly like one of those, well, uh-oh, because we meet people on both sides of the fence. I remember I was young, I had a head cold once. There's nothing more encouraging than when you're sick and somebody to tell you to have more faith, right? So <laughs> that was a joke. So I remember I walked up to this guy and I, he said, how you doing? I said, I got a head cold. He said, oh, don't say that. I said, well... Why not? I think what, I got avian flu or something. It took me back. Well, don't say that. Why? You got a head cold. Why? Well, because, you know, by Jesus' stripes, you're healed. Well, I, right now I'm sick, though. So I got to get, get healed before I can say I'm healed. He said, don't say that. You know, you, you don't want to tell somebody you're sick. Why? Because you don't want to claim that. And I was like, but I got it. But this is my tissue. You can you see for yourself, right? In example A, there's, this, this is not anything. But yet I've also met so many people on the other side of that. Then when we talk about anything beyond this materialistic world, it's frightening because our response is very, very, very much like Mark chapter 6. When somebody is sick in our lives and we're praying for them and believing that God would heal them, the all-too-spiritual response is simply this. God, we're not quite sure if you want to heal, but if you do, just, just you know, let your will be done. And we can actually, and I'm not saying necessarily that that prayer in essence is wrong. We should always pray, God, let your will be done. But the scary part of it is if we actually step back to the point where we basically say, okay, it's good that you pray. I'm glad that you're believing for something more, but let's be real. Let's be real. I mean, it's good that we pray over that stuff. And yeah, if he wants to, he can. That's really good. But let's be real. You know, let's remember where we live. If someone is diagnosed with cancer, let's be real. It's cancer. You know, let's pray, but let's be real. We live in a world of carpentry. We live in a world of reality. However, God is calling us not just to live in one extreme or the other, but I would suggest attention of both. 
Ask, what does that look like? How do I know that I'm living in faith at the same time I'm living a real life? That's not somebody that looks at you and goes, well, that's kind of weird. You know, you're not trying to convince a person, don't say you're sick, don't say you're sick. The better thing would have been, can I pray for you? That probably would have been better. How can we live in a balance, I would suggest, when you're not offended at either world? The scripture tells us that they became offended at Jesus and walked away. My suggestion is, how do we know if we're living in a proper tension between the natural and the supernatural is when we're not offended at either. I've met those that are hungry for God's inbreaking into this world, desiring a supernatural move, and the moment that something doesn't go the way they want it to, their life crumbles. The moment they pray and something doesn't work out, they no longer believe in God. That's not the right response when something doesn't work. Yet I've met other people that have become not only, now they're not just Christians, but they're realists. Everything they traffic in this world is the prayers that sound spiritual, but simply just say, let's be real about where we're at. I was recently preaching at a service um, at, a, at another church invited me and we were going to pray that God would uh, heal physical bodies. We believe all throughout the Bible that God physically heals. I've personally been healed of something and it freaked me out. I'll be completely honest with you. It's pretty wild. And after I got done praying, and I wasn't speaking in these extreme terms saying that every single person's going to be healed. I didn't offer any holy water to sprinkle on anybody or some green handkerchief that if you would buy would be healed. I simply said, we want to pray for you tonight that God would heal you. And at the end of the service, a lady handed me a little note. And anytime you're preaching and somebody hands you a note, that's really bad. That just, that doesn't mean like bless you, encourage you. And if you want to encourage me through notes, I guess you could. But somebody wants to encourage you notes. That basically means like I disagree with you, but I don't want to say anything. So just here you go. And I got home and my heart broke because I, as I opened up the letter, I began to realize that this woman had somebody very close to her with a very serious illness. But in this serious illness, she strained together a group of scriptures, six of them in fact, to show me why God doesn't heal, why God doesn't do these things. I sat there just heartbroken, not because of the fact of, uh, that, that, that you know, she gave me this letter, but because I recognized the reality of what it is to pray for something and to not see it come to pass. My mom has lived in chronic illness and pain for the last 25 years. She's had six back surgeries, just had a spinal stimulator placed in her back to reduce the pain, and it doesn't work. There is nothing they can do for my mom. Where's my response, though? What do I do when I pray and I don't see God do something? Do I simply sit back and try to turn the Bible into a way that says, it's okay, God doesn't always heal. Absolutely, he does not always heal because people will die. But in that moment, and I suggest in yours as well, we have a responsibility. And in a moment, there's something that happens there. And every single one of us, whether it's about physical healing, which is just blatantly before us in our world, or if it's some personal dream or desire towards a job, a career, a family member, something to go right, and you pray, and it doesn't work. What do we do? What happens when we do that? We pray. God, why will you do this? And it doesn't happen. I want to suggest to you, 
how do we know that we're in proper balance or tension? When we have a view of God who's good enough, great enough, that I can just say, Jesus, whatever you want, if you heal, wonderful. If you don't, I understand. We cannot become offended, though, when God does something or doesn't do something the way that we want him to. Scripture says in the book of Proverbs, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is as the tree of life. I think one of the hardest parts in Christianity is guarding our hearts. Why? Because we live in a world of carpentry. We live in a world that breaks down. A few years ago, Mark and I worked for a guy in the city. We did some construction. And our job was demolition. That was not fun. But the best house that you could walk into, these walls, although they look nice, will someday fall down because this created world is but carpentry. It falls. We live in two worlds at once. Paul says to the church at Philippi, encouraging them, your citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to the subject all things to himself. I mean, just break that down. Your citizenship is in heaven. Why would Paul say that? Why does he say your citizenship is in heaven? Was he saying that in a way that was saying, okay, don't worry about this earthly world. Someday you're going to get out of there. I think maybe, but there's more to it than that. See, the city of Philippi was a Roman colony. Rome at that time, the leading empire of the world, after their uh, military conquests, after you would come out of the military, they would often give soldiers a plot of land. They would say, for your spoils, not only here's a pay, but here's some land that you can move into. Now, Rome itself and Philippi were hundreds of miles apart. They weren't together. But yet, Philippi is considered a miniature Rome, a small Rome, where although you weren't in Rome itself, hundreds of miles away, it was the exact culture, the food, the dance, the party, the idol worship, everything was the same. It was a miniature Rome, although separated. And Paul says this to the church at Philippians, your citizenship is in heaven. He's saying, you're but a colony right now called to model, to live, to express the kingdom of heaven's values here on earth. But this isn't an escapist mentality. This is a mindset of renewal. Philippians 4.1, the verse after that says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for my joy, stand firm in the Lord. Paul is saying that your citizenship is in heaven, but yet you have to be fruitful on earth. It's not one or the other. People say, you know, this phrase, don't be too heavenly minded. You, get, you know, don't be too heavenly minded so you can be earthly good. I, I, I struggle with that because I think I should be as heavenly minded as possible. Not escaping this world, but recognizing that I live in two worlds at once. You're not just a citizen of Scranton or Northeast PA. You are a citizen of heaven and earth. 
if we forget this, if we become offended by this, if we simply reduce God to just a carpenter that we figured out, or if we reduce our citizenship to that of just this world, we'll never be of value. Uh, St. Augustine really developed this concept called the city of God, and I won't go into it very long, just in closing. But he writes as Rome actually collapses. They call Rome the eternal city. There's a lot of parallels throughout the New Testament of this, but Rome was referred to as the the eternal city. For hundreds of years, as you may remember the phrase from school, the Pax Romana, Roman peace, Rome ruled, and there was peace. And not only peace, but there was worship of Rome. The leading uh, religion of that day was actually the imperial cult of Rome. Emperor was considered the son of God. It wasn't just like, it wasn't just a presidency, but make no mistake, it wasn't a dictatorship either. It wasn't worship or else. It was Rome does life better than you do. We're Romans and you're not. You can join the club really by three ways, by birth, by uh, military conquest, or by paying for Roman citizenship. But basically they were expanding this Roman empire, this Roman rule. At that time, though, you look at what's happening. He says, your citizenship, the real eternal city, the true eternal city, the true Rome, the Rome that you're longing for, is not physically found in this world, but is in your heart. I want to say this in closing. Our responsibility, and I hope I'm making sense, because I feel like I'm, I know I'm talking in large kind of abstract concepts is that when our citizenship is rooted firmly in heaven, we recognize that that positions us as believers, as Christians, to model a new way of life on earth. There is something wrong if people look at our lives and the way we view family, the way we view finances, the way we interact with our city, the way we interact with politics, the way we interact with art, the way we interact with music, if it looks identical to the person that doesn't know Christ, there is a problem. The problem, though, is not this. The problem is not abandon this world. The problem is that we don't see God's created value in it. We have retreated from this world, not recognizing that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He was both carpenter whose hands build buildings and the son of God who will build the new Jerusalem. Our problem though is if we demonize one or another you live in two worlds and you have responsibility in both. I think my concern in, 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 in really the thrust of what I want to communicate to you is not abandon one for the other. Don't abandon your citizenship in heaven to say, well, I'm a citizen of this earth, and you know what I want to do? I want to be the wealthiest person imaginable. You know, I want to be uh, the best musician. I want to start a band, and I want to become famous. I want to be the best doctor that, you know, I want to invent this thing and, and separate that from your citizenship in heaven. My prayer for you also, though, is not this. It's not that you would demonize your career. It's not that you would look down on things and go, oh, well, this is just, just carpenter stuff. This doesn't matter. God's not involved in this stuff. 
You know, I don't need to pursue higher education. I don't need to manage my money well. I can put myself into hundreds and thousands of dollars of debt because who cares? I'm going to heaven anyways. My prayer, my passion for you is that you would see God in the carpenter. I'm not talking about pantheism, God in everything. I'm talking about Jesus, the creator of this physical world, and not become offended by it. That you would see your personal mission is living in these two worlds. A world that has hands that build things, and then a world that can see through that and use it for his glory. If you're in business, let me say this. Make as much money as you can for God's kingdom. Employ the most amount of people you can. And treat them in the most righteous way. If you're a musician, make music that glorifies God. And I'm not talking about music every other word that's just Christian music. I'm talking about become the best musician you could possibly become to the point where people say, there's something different about who you are. Let your citizenship of heaven mark everything you do in this world. If I could have the worship team come, I'm going to close, which is one or two more thoughts as we end this morning. It's very easy. It's very easy. Can we stand together? It's very easy to forget our citizenship in heaven by being consumed by materialism. And equally, it's possible, I don't know what your personal struggle is, but to look down on this world so much to the point where it doesn't matter. You live in two worlds. You're not a human body that has a spirit. You're a spirit that has a human body. This body will get old and wrinkly. Turn to that person beside you and say, it only gets worse from here. Come on, encourage somebody this morning and say, it's, gravity's going to set in sooner or later. <laughs> the sooner you just get comfortable with that. Botox can't hide gravity. Your cheeks stay up and then the skin, everything else comes down with it. Right? It only gets worse from here. I'm kidding. Kind of. Actually, I'm not. <laughs> Enjoy it while you can, honey. This is... This, <laughs> I'm at my peak physical... Some people are like... Oh, poor girl, right? Oh, shame. (laughs) We live in two worlds. A world of carpentry that's decaying. But a world of carpentry right now that needs to be renewed. This world needs you. Not just to come to church on Sunday. This world needs you to see your career, to see your family, everything. It's not just something that we entertain ourselves with and we leave, but that we're renewing the world around us. This morning, I want to pray as we sing these songs, just in closing, that if you've become offended in your heart towards God, particularly in the idea of answered prayers, first I want to encourage you that God is in control. That God is sovereign. That God has a plan. Period. When things go wrong, God's not on the other end of the stick laughing at you. 
God's not holding things back to torment you. God is in control. He is sovereign. He is righteous. And he is holy. And you can trust his goodness. But my prayer is that you would trust his sovereignty enough to not superimpose what he's done one time as to do the next. This is where we err. We pray once and we think, God, I know you want to do this and it doesn't happen. And the next time we go to pray, we go, "Ah, he doesn't do this. My hope is that we would be able to trust his sovereignty that when something doesn't happen, we don't get offended when he comes to do a new thing. Maybe you've prayed for a close family member for salvation, for healing, and never took place. My prayer, though, is the next time you pray, you don't go, yeah, we live in a world of carpentry. It's not going to work out. Yeah, sorry, Jesus. Let's trust his sovereignty enough to let him be God. But let's pray and let's offer ourselves to be healed and to be hands of healing in this world.